3: could we get a little bit of spooky music just for a second in the background here? It is, in fact, October. (laughs) Perfect. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. We are men of our word. Earlier, we had floated the idea of finding some more frightening, disturbing, creepy tales as we get closer to Halloween.
4: Ben, didn't we do a Pope-based kind of spooky, creepy tale already? But that was pre-October.
3: No, you're right. That was pre-October. And uh, we... We talked about whether or not we should save
4: that one, but that was just such a cool and strange story. Oh, we were compelled. <laughs> the power of Christ compelled us mm-hmm. to put that podcast out in the world. And the power of
3: super producer Casey Pegram helped make that reality. We're looking at a story today that is equal parts ridiculous and, and I would say
4: tragic. Yeah, I, I'd say mainly tragic.
3: Mm-hmm. In and, my book. Yeah. Okay. And this is this is something that you had you had hyped to me to, Noel, which is the story of mummies in Mexico.
4: Yeah. Specifically the Mexican town of Guanajuato, which was established in the early 16th century, um and, and was something of a boom town for silver mining. Mm-hmm. Uh it became that in the eighteenth century to the point where I believe it actually kind of messed with the economy of silver because there was just so much damn silver coming out of there that it like jacked with the price of silver in a way that caused some real economic problems in the region?
3: Absolutely, yeah. For a time, it was the third largest silver mine on the planet in terms of production. They still have traces of this mining Industry, right? Especially what is it, Boca del
4: Inferno? Boca del Inferno. It's a mine shaft that um, Boca meaning mouth. So that's, right. that's the mouth of hell. Uh, and this is an attraction you can see. Um, there are also it's known for its beautiful architecture. These brightly colored Baroque buildings, mm-hmm. and there are these like narrow kind of um, alleys between the buildings, and it's a very walkable, uh, pic- picturesque little city. But It also was an important stronghold during the Mexican Revolution Mm -hmm. um, when Mexico was able to break free of Spanish control. And that is when Father Miguel Hidalgo in 1810, um, who was the parish priest in Dolores, put out his um, infamous Grito de la Dolores, which is the shout of Dolores, and he assembled a a mob of peasants— brandishing machetes and clubs, and they eventually made their way to Guanajuato because it was the most prominent, largest city in the area, and that became their stronghold Mm -hmm. and the site of the beginning of the Mexican Revolution. So a lot of history in this town, Um, but today's episode is not about any of those things. Oh,
3: yes, yes. Let me set this up. We should say that the name Guanajuato actually translates to mountainous place of frogs. Love that. And it's it's had several different names throughout its time because it's a very old city. So
4: maybe an Aztec era where the sure. name was, yeah, what was it?
3: Uh, it was the land of straw, I yeah. believe. And land. the
4: word is beautiful, what, mm-hmm. the where this translated from. And uh, it was an Aztec word, paxtitlan.
3: You um, know, that's, that is a beautiful word. I personally, I also like mo'o'oti. The place of metals. Yeah. Which is the older, makes, older name.
4: Makes perfect sense. It was also the place of a uh, weird government sanctioned grave robbing. That's
3: right. Today's story involves grave robbing and it involves, um, I'm just going to say it, a really terrible move on the part of local government. So this is a big city. A lot of people get buried. You know, life happens. You're born, you live, and you die. And there was a cholera outbreak around the area of Guanajuato in uh, the 1830s, around 1833 or so, and these people, when they expired, they were interned, they were buried, in some cases they were embalmed. But a few years later, the local government puts a tax on graves.
4: Yeah, so the thing is, like, you would rent this place. Like you didn't own it. Yeah. Yeah. You would rent it. And I think the initial rental period was about five years. And then you had to re up your uh, rental. Your family had to, you know, assuming you had any family to to speak of. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't pay this, this is something that was instituted between 1865 to 1958, by the way, very recently um, done away with. And if you did not pay for uh, three years in a row, that's right. Then your peeps would be uprooted, literally dug up not really dug up because they were in these airtight um, mausoleum chambers, they would be removed uh, and evicted. And they were either taken to a, a simple pauper's grave outside of town. Uh, and this is the thing, too, that's interesting about this story. the This uh, this um, culture very much reveres death. You know, you have, like, the deus de los muertos and uh, all of these kind of death-related rituals and just deep... Uh, veneration for one's ancestors and paying respects and, you know, this very religious culture. The idea of digging up these loved ones and, like, putting them in a, a less desirable burial space had to have been very painful for some of these families. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't even the worst thing that could have happened, was it, Ben? Well, yeah,
3: there are stranger things that happened because they would be put in a pauper's grave or they might be placed in an ossuary, which was actually under the cemetery grounds itself, waiting in case the relatives would come back, cough up the money, and have their loved ones reinterred or reburied, which did happen in a couple of cases. These people were taken out of the grave and then put back in. But when they were taken out of the grave, often they weren't decayed in the way that you would expect uh, a dead body to rot over time. They were preserved. They were mummies. They were mummies. They had become mummies naturally. They were mummified by the environment in which they were interred. I believe the first one that was found mummified was a man named Dr. Remigio Leroy in 1865.
4: The Frenchman, right? Or the French doctor, I think is what he was known mm-hmm. as. So we're sort of burying the lead here. We were getting there. But, um, yes, Ben, this is very important, the fact that they were naturally mummified from lack of oxygen and just the very dry climate that mm-hmm. that existed there this part of the world. And so they would literally just dry out, and their clothes would rot quicker than their bodies would. Um, and here's the thing. These mummies, when they found this, this Frenchman, the first guy they found that had undergone this uh, transformation – they were like, this is pretty cool. And by they, I mean, I guess the city people that ran the mausoleum. What do you think? Like city officials. This was a state-run facility, right? Right, yeah. They were like, okay, this is pretty cool. We should hold on to this guy. And so they do that. And they continue doing that for several years before they realize, hey, I think we might have a little money maker on our hands. Mm-hmm. So what happens then is the ones that the curators, let's call them, deem – I guess fascinating enough specimens right are kept and in the 50s a museum is opened.
3: Yes, it's true this harkens back to our earlier episode which seems so so long ago now on corpses in a diorama. Do you remember that?
4: I very much do with the the camel and the mm-hmm. the Arabic gentleman with mm-hmm. the uh, the human skull, I believe, right. right?
3: And when yes, and when we say thought to be fascinating, what do we mean? This is pretty graphic stuff. These mean things like a uh, mummy that was pregnant or people who appear to have been buried alive, such as Ignacia Aguilar. The people who were buried alive were almost certainly buried by accident. Due to the extreme nature of the cholera outbreak,
4: and yeah, that's right. Uh, and a lot of these um, specimens were found to have cholera or have suffered from smoke inhalation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a really great, uh, really short podcast from a show called Mexico Un- Unexplained. I think is what that's it's called. The one. Yeah, and um, it, it it goes into some of these details. But um, really interesting that they would have had smoke inhalation because it was either from smoking cigarettes or any kind of tobacco, or possibly from working in those mines under less than uh, ideal conditions.
3: Oh, yes, and before we get too far away from it, I want to clarify, because I I remember it, I did find the explanation of how this museum thing came about, and it's kind of disappointing in what it says about the human condition, because once word of the Guanajuato mummies started spreading around town, other people in town were apparently sneaking over and paying people who worked at the cemeteries just a couple of pesos to sneak in and take a quick peek. So it was uh, a—the workers were motivated by profit, and then they were incentivized, you know, because this burial tax is still around, to pull more and more bodies out of the crypt and then find more and more mummies and charge more and more people to see them.
4: So where were they keeping them before the museum situation took off?
3: Before the museum, they would eventually, they would be kept in that ossuary under the graveyard. Just, like, for a rainy day? In case, well, the official reason again is just in case the families come back and say, we do have the money to pay the burial tax.
4: But why would they keep them versus burying them outside of town? Like, I, my understanding was that they kept these because they were so crazy looking, and they, like...
3: I think I think it's a situation, again, where there was an official reason, and then there was a real reason.
0: Got it.
2: Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: So let's talk about this museum, when that started happening
3: el museo de las momias which you know the museum of the mummies that's it it was the same place where the cemetery workers were just charging people several pesos to enter into the building and see the bones and the mummies uh with with again dr leroy being the first one on display but when did it officially become a museum instead of this underground display of
4: death Yeah, that's right. But like we said before, you know, um, there was money to be made here and the government wasn't getting those uh, mausoleum lease rental fees. So Mm -hmm. they figured they would capitalize in another way. And they opened this to the public uh, in the 1950s. And it was actually voted uh, Guanajuato's, I believe, number one uh, tourist attraction. Mm. And so for a uh, nominal fee of two pesos, you can take a look at the more than 100 it's 108, um, I believe. Yeah, 108 yeah. um, dried-out human mummies, natural That's... mummies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this includes all different types of, of situations in varying de- stages of decay, kind of.
3: Yeah, and you can still see their facial expressions in a lot of cases, which, you know, we mentioned the somewhat gruesome details that have allowed investigators to determine who was buried alive and who was buried when they were actually dead.
4: Well, the one you mentioned that was buried alive actually still has her hands like trans, like you know, mm. like covering her eyes. I think in she died biting her arm. Yeah, and and the thing too is most of these um, these cadavers um, have these just pained expressions as Mm -hmm. though they're like shrieking in agony. And it's because of what happens when the tongue dries out, Mm -hmm. uh, during this mummification process and the jaw starts to slacken. You start, it kind of looks like the scream, you know, that, that that painting. Um, and this is pretty crazy. Uh, Ray Bradbury actually, uh, wrote a short story about, based on his visit to this, this museum when he was vacationing with his wife Mm -hmm. in, in, in Guanajuato, uh, um, and he wrote a story called The Next in Line where he very vividly describes this so i'm going to um read a little bit of that for Take you Take it now. away yeah Casey can we get that spooky music back for this this is this i think i think this, is, this deserves it <clears throat> They were screaming they looked as if they had leaped snapped upright in their graves clutched hands over their shriveled bosoms and screamed jaws wide tongues out nostrils flared and been frozen that way. All of them had open mouths. There was a perpetual screaming. They were dead, and they knew it. In every raw fiber and evaporated organ, they knew it. She stood listening to them scream. They say dogs hear sounds humans never hear, sounds so many decibels higher than normal hearing that they seem non-existent. The corridor swarmed with screams. Screams poured from terror yawned lips and dry tongues. Screams you couldn't hear, because they were so high. Whew. Not cool, Ray Bradbury. Not cool. What do you think about that, Ben?
3: Yeah, I've actually I've read this story. It's um, I, Ray Bradbury is a fantastic writer and very appropriate for Halloween. The Mummy Museum also inspired other works. Of fiction. In the late 1970s, Werner Herzog took a number of shots of these various mummies for the title sequence of his film, Nosferatu the Vampire, because he just wanted a morbid, eerie, atmospheric opening sequence.
4: I remember that sequence, and I did not know that, Ben.
3: And one of the museum's other notable uh, points of interest is that it has the smallest mummy in the world. It is a fetus from the pregnant woman that we had mentioned earlier. It's a heartbreaking thing, and it's strange to feel the turns of history so immediate and tactile, you know, because so often we think of these horrific or tragic events as an abstract thing from a history book. But going and seeing these real people is a tremendously profound and moving experience. One other work of fiction that we absolutely have to mention is the film that incorporates the mummies of Guanajuato in a not accurate way? It is called Santo versus the Mummies of Guanajuato.
4: Santo being a very popular luchador, a luchador wrestler, yeah. luchador. These are these wrestlers that wear those cool masks, and this guy was like a real celebrity, and it was almost sort of like Abbott and Costello, you know, meets Frankenstein or whatever. It was like a, a very well-known national figure mm-hmm. fighting a very well-known uh, national monster.
3: Yeah, Rodolfo Guzmán Herta, famous wrestler at the time, and we found we found some various clips of this film. You know, again made in 1972, and I'm all in. I want to check it out. I want to watch the whole thing. I'll come back with a review if uh, I'll come back with a review if there's some interest. What makes it relevant for our interest today is that this film spread word of the mummies outside of Mexico, and people began to learn about this on an international level.
4: Yeah, I mean, it started, kind of became much more of a a fixture of popular culture uh, at the time, and it wasn't really uh, replicated for many years, um, but it certainly spread awareness and and likely upped the value um, to the government of this place, right?
3: Right, and this leads us to the ethical question that we've, run into before you know and that that question is is it right to display the the bodies of these people certainly i mean it's certainly not with their consent and we don't know if their family members were asked or if their family members
4: consented yeah there's actually a quote in this piece from the guardian um that just talks about how there were no laws broken in doing this that the uh, the mexican people have a different attitude towards death Um, that they don't, I don't know. And it's kind of counter to what I said at the beginning of the show. I would assume that it would be, this would be, uh, very disrespectful. This would be considered, um, like heresy kind of, you know, to disinter people's loved ones. Um, but you know, the guy that's in charge of this place seems to think differently. This guy, Arturo Taberas, who is the head spokesman for the Guanajuato government, said in this Daily Mail piece, I think I misattributed it to The Guardian earlier, um, that, quote, the museum is an important part of Guanajuato's tourist appeal. Okay, that's your first point. Uh, The museum breaks no laws in displaying its exhibit to visitors who are given fair warning of its graphic content. Here's the important part. We have a different cultural approach to death in Mexico. Here we celebrate the cycle of life and accept death as inevitable. 99% Ninety-nine percent of the visitors leave the experience pleased with what they saw, but here's the thing: so many of these infants uh, in in the museum, of which there are several, uh, are often dressed. As saints, so there's one that that goes by. They they call uh, colloquially Little Saint Martin, who is it's basically a skeleton of a tiny baby Mm -hmm. wearing um, the traditional garb of Saint Martin, something called a cassock, and Mm -hmm. holding a broom and uh, holding rosary beads, and it is uh, macabre, my friend.
3: So. I'm glad that you mentioned The Guardian because there's a Guardian piece I remembered I wanted to bring up. It's uh, called Why Mexicans Celebrate the Day of the Dead by Antonio Weiss. And in there, it has this just stunning Octavio Paz quote about what he sees as the Mexican attitude with death. He says, the Mexican is familiar with death jokes about it, caresses it, sleeps with it, celebrates it. True, there is as much fear in his attitude as in that of others, but at least death is not hidden away. He looks at it face-to-face with impatience, disdain, or irony. And I think that's, you know, maybe that's, the, maybe that's what makes it okay. Maybe this is an important thing rather than an exploitative thing. You know what I mean? Because they can't be making that much money. Right, profit can't be the sole motivation at this I don't know. point. It's
4: just four thousand visitors a week. I mean, that's a decent amount of cash. Right? Yeah, I guess it does add up. Yeah, sure. It's, and it's been open since the fifties. I mean, you know. Yeah, you're right. Kind of a bit of a cash cow, if mm-hmm. I do say so myself. But I guess what I'm getting at, I'm struggling with, is uh, there was even so this this tax was uh, relinquished, right? Uh, and right. In, at the end of the fifties, but in yet, 1958. In 1958, but there actually was a uh, recent addition to this collection, was a baby that died in 1999 at six months old. So I want to clear something up real quick. Sure. And we actually had a little discussion off mic. Mm -hmm. Um, The law that required the tax, there was a grave tax, went away in 1958, but there was also, like, you still had to rent these spaces. You
3: still had to lease the land. Lease the land.
4: And, like, you you would uh, re-up it for, like, 20 years or something like that. Like, it started at, like, a five-year, and Mm -hmm. then if you didn't come back, then they could still remove your loved one's corpse. And that happened with this baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the really heartbreaking thing is apparently the baby is in the collection at the museum and the mother who's still living uh, pretty regularly comes and visits her, her infant child. Yeah.
3: And there's some, the description of how this happens sounds remarkably cold. So if the, If the family, the surviving relatives, choose not to pay or um, re-sign on that lease, then the body is removed and it goes to the museum's curator, and the curator inspects the corpse to see whether it's good enough to be added to the collection. And I had earlier said the number was 108 corpses in the display, but I believe
0: it's 111 now because they have added some.
4: I hope that wasn't too confusing with the difference between the grave tax and the the lease, because they were two different things, and it threw me for a little bit. But no, um, I mean, we we got there. We clarified I think we did. It. I think yeah. we did. Um. So what's what's next? Yeah, this sounds like a place that I would be intrigued. I mean, I'm I'm into kind of like this sort of dark type stuff. I went to the Museum of Death in L.A. and quite enjoyed that, even though some of it was even a little little much for me, a lot of like uh, embalming videos and, uh, you know, mm. m- murder crime scene photographs and things like that. Um, but do you think this is right, Ben? Uh, do you think this is of value to society to be able to yep. experience death in such a raw, uh, you know, kind of detached way? It's it's interesting to me. I mean, that's
3: the question I asked earlier in the show, you know, what ethically is this more useful to humanity as, as a, a memorial, as a, uh, a way of educating people, or is it exploitative? It seems like the museum itself has a lot of support from the local community, and it is of benefit to science because we're able to research the process of natural mummification. Texas State University had some uh, great research on how this stuff occurs and how the environment interacts with the corpse. But I would say it's similar to, um, did you ever see that bodies exhibit?
4: I never did, um, but I've seen photographs of it. These are the perfectly preserved mm -hmm, cadavers mm -hmm. where you see the muscles and all that stuff, and It's
3: fascinating, yeah, where you see organs or the circulatory system or nervous system taken out and kind of plasticized to give you a better look at human anatomy but those people when they were alive didn't consent to that right surely not in every case and we have to ask ourselves at what point does the benefit to science or the benefit to history outweigh the the ethical pitfalls of displaying someone's corpse after they die. I will say that I, if I'm in that town, I will go visit just because I think it's in a way it would feel more like a memorial or commemorating the deaths of those people. And these were not, these were not uh, for the most part, these were not well-off folks. These were, what well, that's sort of the point, right? Yeah, these were common people.
4: Yeah, I mean, the idea they had to, you know, because, I mean, rich people would have been able to buy a plot, right? You certainly didn't have to lease. Mm-hmm. That's not the law. It's just they couldn't afford to buy a, a grave plot, so they were able to lease it in one of these municipal cemeteries, mausoleums or whatever, right?
3: Absolutely, and I would err on the side of uh, scientific benefit and historical commemoration. Uh, Guanajuato's mayor, Dr. Eduardo Hicks, at the t- uh, back in 2007, initiated the Guanajuato mummy research project and invited several scientists to go down and spend more than a year exploring the origin and the development of the mummies. And it's also been a subject of a National Geographic documentary series, which I'm going to tell you the name of it. I haven't seen the series, but the name throws me off. You ready? I am. The Mummy Roadshow.
4: Nice. So it's sort of like the Antiques Roadshow, but with... With mummies. mummies.
3: Yeah, I feel like that's that's a little glib. But in these recent years, they've learned a lot about the people, the individuals who were interred here and then later displayed in this museum. It's it's an incredibly interesting article, and if you would like to read it, let me know on Ridiculous Historians, and we can just post it up there. And if uh, you are a person who does not want to see any of the visuals of this stuff. We completely understand. This particular article has uh, no photographs.
4: Well, I think that's a pretty good place to leave it. There's certainly, if you're into photographs, there's plenty of them out there, uh, Mm -hmm. and these are really... Pretty upsetting images, to be honest. But it's also, they're strangely beautiful, I want to say. Um, haunting. Very haunting, as as you may have gotten from that Ray Bradbury passage. And it really, apparently, severely affected him and that he felt the need to write this piece to kind of exercise some of those demons from himself. Uh, and I could see that. Uh, I wonder what it smells like in there, Ben. Probably just kind of musty, like an old library or something. Because these, these corpses would not have had a, a smell of putrefaction because everything was just dried up.
3: Right. The mummification happens so rapidly. Uh, like a lot of museums, it probably just smells old in some inexplicable way, but our senses are so vulnerable to our pre-existing uh, mental states, right? So maybe we are mentally capturing the smell. You know what? It probably, it probably smells like cleaning, cleaning supplies because there's a lot of glass, so I'm sure they have to use a ton of Windex. It probably smells faintly clean.
4: Yeah, maybe a little bit of a chemical smell.
3: And I have a question too. So so far we have we have covered a very interesting specific type of vampire native to the Philippines. Uh, we've looked at mummies, although they were not monster mummies from an old Universal horror film or something. What particular monsters or historical cases of monstrosity should we? Should we look at next? Should we look at the trials of werewolves? That's always an interesting, strange path
4: to go on. One of the things we did the other night when we had a game night at the office, we played a game called Werewolf, um, where I ended up uh, falsely accusing several of my closest friends and coworkers of being werewolves and had them lynched. And they they didn't deserve that, Ben. They were, they were village. They were townspeople the whole time. I'll never be able to forgive myself for that.
3: They probably won't be able to forgive you either. That's okay. I deserve it. it. It's probably the end of it. I deserve
4: it. But um, in in, in their memory, uh, we should, in fact, research something about werewolves. I think that's smart.
3: Yeah, let us know if there's a werewolf story that particularly stands out to you. I'd love to, Ben, you might be saying, but how on earth do I contact you guys? Well, it's quite simple. We've got good news. If you are on the internet, you can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook, in particular, Check us out on Ridiculous Historians, our Facebook community page, where you can talk with your fellow listeners, all of whom I assure you are uh, brilliant, wonderful people with great taste in podcasts. Right? That's pretty good. Yeah.
4: I support that. Um, let's thank our super producer, Casey Pegram, for you know being super as always. Uh, thanks to our friend and colleague, Alex Williams, who composed our theme. Thanks
3: to Christopher Haciotis and Eves Jeffcoat, our research associates. A thank you to Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister, who's been quiet lately. Yeah, thank God. Oh, folks, I suspect no really. No, you like him. You're friends. With sure, him.
4: whatever you say, Ben.
3: Oh, man. All right, well, I will try to keep the quizster heat off of you, my I'm friend. I'm kidding.
4: I welcome it. I need a little little kick in the pants every now and then. Who better to do it than that guy?
3: And most importantly, we're going to thank you for bringing this great story to the show. Oh, man, no problem.
4: It was a lot of fun. Oh, no, that's, not, that's not the right thing at all. It wasn't really fun at all. It was kind of disturbing and upsetting. But uh, I'd rather, there's no one I'd rather be disturbed and upset with uh, in this world, Ben, than you. And you, folks. We'll see you next time.